0: Uh, Glad you're here this morning. If you're joining us for the first time or if you've been away for a while, uh, I'm teaching a series that I'm calling The End of the World, and we're taking a walk through the book of Revelation together. And We are on week seven. I can't believe that we're already on week seven and we're going to be wrapping this up in a couple of weeks. We've got two more weeks. Next week, Pastor Dave will be teaching on the millennium and then after that will be the end of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. But I'm really excited to talk with you today about the second coming of Christ. And uh, these last events that are going to take place, one of the things that I read this week as I was studying, uh, one commentator made the statement in his book that the second coming of Christ is going to be the pinnacle of history. In my last message series, when I was talking about the impact of Jesus on the world, I said that Jesus was the hinge of history. Jesus' life changed everything in the world. It was like a page turn, and Jesus was the hinge that changed everything. But as we ramp up to the end of all things, the reality is when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, it will be the pinnacle of all time. It will be the high point of all history. And uh, we need to be ready. Do you know what I'm talking about? We need to be ready for this to be taking place. And so I'm, I'm really excited to share this with you this week. We're going to be camping out in Revelation chapter 19, and we'll get to that in just a little, uh, a little bit. This week, uh, I was thinking back. 18 years ago, 18 and a half years ago, uh, Chris and I were married in October of 1994. How many of you are old enough to remember 1994? Okay. Doesn't apply to all of you. Uh, But Chris and I were married in October of 1994, and I was thinking back to some of the events. I didn't warn my wife that I was telling this story today, and uh, she hates it when when I don't warn her. So feel free to just correct the story as we go because it's been 18 years and my memory is fading, of course. Uh, I don't have very many regrets when it comes to the events of, of marrying my wife, but I do have one regret. And I was thinking about this this week um, we had a really short engagement when when we got married. We knew each other for a long time, seven and a half years. We'd been uh, very, very close friends. And then I decided that I wanted this woman in my life for good in April of 1994. I proposed to her in July, and then we were married in October. So once I... Once I made up my mind, the ball was rolling pretty quickly. And, and because of that short time frame, we didn't have much time to plan a wedding. We didn't have much money. And one of the big challenges that I had was I, I was working in a church, and I'd used up a bunch of my vacation time. And so we knew we wanted a honeymoon, but uh, I'd used up vacation time. And, and so I was afraid to ask my boss for extra time, which was really stupid. I look back on it now and think, you know, my boss was my friend. He would have given me some extra vacation time. Time, but I was afraid to ask, and so we were saving every bit of vacation time we had. So I would go down to Idaho to visit her whenever I had a holiday, you know, or or maybe take one vacation day or whatever. But Chris was driving up to Montana to see me as much as she could, and we made a critical decision in the lead up to our wedding. Uh, that I would not go to Idaho to move her to Montana. And this is one of my big regrets. Um, It was just a mistake not to go to Idaho. What we did, uh, we bought a house just a couple of weeks before we got married. And uh, then the weekend before our wedding, Chris drove up to Montana and we swapped vehicles. She had a little Honda Prelude and I had uh, a Ford Ranger. Now, those of you that know vehicles, you know how little a Ford Ranger is, right? So she took my little red truck and she drove to Southern Idaho, and she and her dad and her brother helped her load all of her worldly goods into that tiny little truck, and and they just loaded that truck up real high and they covered everything with one of those blue tarps that you buy at Walmart, right, and tied it down with those cheap yellow ropes that are just plastic, right. And then she set off on that 700-mile drive to get to Montana with all of her worldly possessions. And, and I just thought to myself, you know, Chris is a strong woman. She's a leader in her job. She's a go-getter. She's not afraid of anything. I just thought she'd be fine. And then she called me from, do you remember where you called me from, Chris? Was it Idaho Falls somewhere? I picked up the phone. She called, and she was sobbing on the phone. Rose! The tarp flew off, and I had to chase my throw pillows down the freeway. And, and, and she was just horrified. Why didn't you come get me? And, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, I wasn't even married yet, and I already felt like a bad husband, you know. And... <laughs> It was awful. So I said, Dad and I will jump in the car and we'll meet you. We'll get to you. And so my dad and I drove and I finally got to her. She's crying and she's shaking. And we tied that tarp down and we got her to Montana. But I've always regretted. I mean, wh- wh- how, how much, how, how stupid was I? This is the woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. I'm called to lay down my life for her. Why wouldn't I go and move her to our new home, right? I was just, I was young and stupid, right? And, that applies to so many things, but um, <laughs> October came, we got married, I, I brought a picture, you've probably seen this picture before, we got married, we got married up in the, in the mountains of Idaho, and it was a magical, beautiful day, and then we spent the rest of my vacation on honeymoon, which was awesome, so uh, she's still with me, so I didn't blow it too badly, right? She's shaking her head, I'm not sure what that means. The reason I tell that story is, is, is for this reason. Did you know that the church is called the Bride of Christ? The church is called the Bride of Christ. And we're going to talk about what that means today in the context of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But uh, when we get to Revelation chapter 19, in just a moment we're going to find this description of a wedding... That takes place in heaven. And it's a part of these final events in the book of Revelation. And it means so much for you and me as we are a part of the church. Which in the scripture is called the bride of Christ. The church. Now let me me just say this also. When I say the church is the bride of Christ. I'm talking about church big C. Okay. The church big C. I'm not talking about connect church church little c, okay? I'm not talking about any church, little c. I'm talking about the global universal church of, of believers that have attached themselves to Jesus and have become his body. We're Connect Church. I don't know if you've paid any attention to our logo, but but we use little c's in, in our logo, and, and part of that is because we're just a little fish in a big ocean of the big sea church, right? And the Big C Church is the Bride of Christ. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit today as we jump into all of this. But if you've got your Bibles today, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to be camping out here. Uh, if you've been keeping up and doing your next steps with me and reading ahead, you've read this chapter. If you haven't, we're going to read a couple of paragraphs from this chapter. And uh, and I want to talk about three big events that take place in Revelation chapter 19. As we come to this pinnacle of history, there's three really big things that you need to know are going to happen in in pretty rapid succession, and, and they're all critical for us to know about and really exciting if we're a part of this big C church, the Bride of Christ. Now, the first one I'm going to skip over And so if you're taking notes today on your note cards, uh, just leave number one blank and we'll come back to that. But the second event that I want to talk about today is the second coming of Christ. And if you're taking notes, you can just jot that down. The second really big event in Revelation chapter 19 is what we call the second coming of Christ. And if you've got your Bibles, uh, I'd like you to read along with me, not out loud, but just follow along. This won't be up on the screen, but you can follow along in your Bible or on your electronic device. This is what we read in Revelation 19, starting at verse 11, uh, the second coming of Christ. John, who's writing the book of Revelation, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly And wages a righteous war. That's an important sentence for us to hear. He judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Verse 12 says, his eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. And when we get to that part of the verse, we understand that this is Jesus. Because Jesus reveals himself in the Gospels to be the word of God. John chapter 1 in particular says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God. So this is Jesus riding on a white horse. He's named Faithful and True. He judges fairly, wages a righteous war. Verse 14, the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. So what we see here is that there is an army dressed in white robes on white horses following this rider on the white horse. And we know from earlier in the book of Revelation that this army, it sounds like, The church of Jesus Christ, because the saints, the church, those who are in heaven with Christ have been dressed in white robes. We know that from earlier in Revelation. So it sounds like Christians are on these horses following him. Verse 15 says, From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, and he will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press." Now, this is interesting because we don't think of Jesus this way, right? I I asked you a couple of weeks ago, if you were to finish the sentence, God is blank, what would you say? And most of you answered, you would say, God is love. And we think of Jesus in this merciful, gracious, loving demeanor. And we know, yeah, he got mad. He got ticked once in a while and threw over the tables in the temple. But mostly we think of Jesus as this compassionate, loving figure. But here in Revelation 19, he's coming to release the fierce wrath of God. It's a frightening thing that we see described here. Verse 16 says, on his robe, on his thigh was written this title, King of kings and Lord of all lords. It's the second coming of Christ. Now, if you're taking notes today, you can move right on to blank number three on your, on your list because what happens right after this paragraph that I just read is what we call the battle of Armageddon. That's the third big event in Revelation chapter 19, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but Revelation 19 describes this huge war in which Jesus comes and he just wipes his enemies out. It's just a few verses that describes this in Revelation 19. The battle of Armageddon has kind of captured the imagination of our world, and, and, and the movies, there's all kinds of stuff about Armageddon, but really, it's a pretty short thing. The armies. Assemble in Revelation 13, and then in Revelation 19, Jesus comes and just wipes them out. It's just over. And there's lots of other scriptures that talk about this battle, and I'm not going to get into all of that. What I want you to see here is that the second coming of Christ is immediately followed by this battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to back up to the second coming of Christ, and I want to make a distinction here today uh, because a lot of times there's some confusion over the second coming of Christ and the rapture. And one of the things I want you to understand today as we work through this chapter is that the rapture is not the same as the second coming of Christ. The rapture is not the same as the second coming of Christ. The confusion comes because lots of of the predictions from the New Testament that predict Jesus' coming uh, when they're talking about the rapture, it, sounds, it uses a lot of the same language. But if you read carefully, you'll see there's a big distinction between these two events in the future of the church. I want to explain a little bit about the rapture so you understand it. Uh, one of the best prophecies about the rapture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can turn there in your Bible if you want to, or I do have this one up on the screen so you can, you can see it along with me. This is what Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says about the rapture. He says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. Are you ready, Brett? Grab that trumpet. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Okay? Now, notice Revelation didn't talk about that. Okay, this is, a, this is a very different description. First, it says, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with all of them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, a couple important distinctions to make uh, about this prophecy Why I know that this is different from the second coming of Christ. Well, to begin with, here in this description of this rapture, we see that Jesus meets believers, he meets Christians in the air. He doesn't make a touchdown on planet Earth. He just comes, he breaks the clouds, all of us are gathered up in the air, and then it says we are with the Lord forever. The second distinction that I see is there is no mention of the coming wrath of God. There's no judgment, there's no fierce anger, there's no war, there's no battle. This is very definitely a distinct event that is different from the second coming of Christ. And they are not the same thing. Okay? So if you remember the chart that I shared with you last year, uh, I I believe, I'm I'm from the, the group of believers that sees that the rapture takes place at the beginning of the tribulation there's seven years of the wrath of God, and then the second coming of Christ comes. And, and that's the timing that I see. Now, again, I've said to you before, this is an open-handed thing. If you've studied Revelation deeply and you see things differently, it doesn't separate us. This is just how I have kind of uh, come to the conclusion of where this is. But for sure, the rapture is not the same as the second coming. Why am I hammering this? Uh, it's important that we know what the Bible says. Uh, when I was a young man, I think I was probably 20, 21 years old, uh, I was taking a flight, and I was flying by myself, and I got seated in the airplane in the middle seat, and for somebody as big as me, that's like torture for three hours, right? And I, as I recall, it was about a four-hour flight, and I got seated next to somebody who belonged to a religious group that believed very, very differently than we do. And uh, she made it her mission in those four hours to convert me to her religion, Okay, have you ever had that opportunity, anyone? Sometimes people knock on your door, right, or whatever. And and do you know what their tactic is for, for Christians like us? Their tactic is to prove to us that we don't know what the Bible says. And the first thing that this woman seized on was what I believe about the rapture. And I found out that I was really confused, and I had all these verses I, I didn't understand. I had some misconceptions. And she said, look, let me show you in the Bible what the Bible really says. And, and it really messed me up. I don't want you to be messed up. So it's important for you to understand these events are different, okay? Okay. But now I want to get back to number one on that list. I told you there's three really important events. The second one is the second coming of Christ. The third is the Battle of Armageddon. Here's number one, and this is the one that this week just captured my attention. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And this takes place before the second coming of Christ. If you read this this week, this is already familiar t- to you, but in case you didn't, I want to read a few of the, of the verses that describe the wedding feast of the Lamb. Verse 6 says, I heard again what sounded like a shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder, and, and these people were, were proclaiming, Praise the Lord! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. And then John tells us what that represents. He says the fine linen represents the good deeds of of God's holy people the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb now when Chris and I got married we didn't have a lot of time to 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 plan a big fancy reception and we didn't have any money either and so we had a grand wedding potluck okay anybody else go to a wedding potluck okay that that was kind of weird but that's kind of how we started off right um, we're going to a wedding this weekend. Chris and I get to go to Connecticut. A young man who's like a son to us. Our boy Adam is getting married on Saturday, and he and his fiance have asked me to perform the ceremony. Actually, Chris is participating too. And so we get to be a part of this wedding. And uh, his fiance, Alicia, comes from a very traditional New York Italian family, all right? And so uh, they are going to have a wedding feast. It won't be a wedding potluck. And, and I asked her this week, I said, Alicia, what's on your menu for for the wedding feast? And so she sent me a couple of pictures. Uh, here's uh, the menu. This will be posted up in different places in the wedding venue. They're starting with a house salad and Italian bread, and then the main course is grilled kebabs, do-it-yourself baked potato bar. How good does that sound? Corn on the cob a butter bar. I have no idea even what that means. And then the best part is wedding cake and assorted cookies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Go to the next picture, would you? She sent me this. This is a drawing of the dessert table. Okay? And, uh, and there's wedding cake. You can see brownies and cannolis. I love cannolis. Any Italian wedding's got to have cannoli. All kinds of stuff. Trifle, lemon bars. Love lemon bars. I'm going to come home 10 pounds heavier next week, you guys. I, I mean, I won't, I won't be able to fit into my clothes. But then this is the thing Alicia's most excited about. Can you go back to the previous picture? At the bottom of this menu, the grand finale, they're having a bonfire and they're having a gourmet s'mores bar. And we're going to sit around gourmet s'mores, okay? This isn't just marshmallows and chocolate bars, okay? They've got all kinds of different fixings for the s'mores. And we're going to sit around in our suits and ties and party dresses and roast marshmallows and make gourmet s'mores, okay? Anybody want to go to Connecticut with me? I mean, this is pretty cool, right? Listen, this is just, this is just This is just a barbecue compared to the wedding feast that's going to happen when the bride is united with her groom, when the church comes in full marriage to Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? We were talking a few weeks ago in our small group about the church being the bride of Christ, and several of our small group members said, you know, I just think that's weird. Or, or some people said, especially if they haven't had good experiences with marriage, they said, That's, that metaphor doesn't really make me excited to be with Jesus. And, and, and I get it. I, I, I understand that. Let me give you a little background on, uh, on where this idea that the church is the bride of Christ comes from. Marriage customs in the ancient world were very, very different than our American, Western, European wedding customs. And what we see in the relationship between Jesus and his bride is very, very similar to the marriage customs in the ancient world. Centuries ago... Just about every culture in the world practiced something that we call arranged marriage, all right? You've heard about arranged marriage. Nobody in the 21st century wants an arranged marriage, but this is the way it was for centuries. And what would generally happen in Israel and in other cultures was there would, first of all, be a marriage contract that would take place between a young boy's family and a young girl's family. And the parents would get together and they would say, we agree that when our children come of age, they will be married. And most of the time, this would take place before the children had even reached puberty. They were just little kids. And the parents would decide, these two are a good match, they're going to get married. And it was completely arranged for them. Now, Chris and I have been arguing for a long time that some of you would do better if you just let us arrange marriages for you, okay? So I'm just offering our services if you would like us to do that. But what would happen is these parents would would enter into a marriage contract. A dowry would be given from the man's family to the woman's family. It was basically a purchase price for the bride. And at that moment, now listen to this because this is critical. At that moment, these children were considered married. They were legally bound in marriage. It was not an option for the young man when he became 15, 16, 17 years old to go out and sow his wild oats, okay, because he was married to this woman and any sexual activity of any kind would be considered adultery that would be a violation of his marriage vows, It wasn't an option for them to talk about divorce because this was just something that was legally binding from the time they were children to the time that they died. It was a very, very important contract that these kids didn't even have a choice in the matter of. Isn't that interesting? Now, that was the first part of the marriage custom. Here's the second one. Years later then, after the contract was entered into, there would be a marriage ceremony. And it was an elaborate process in which the groom would prepare a place for his wife to live, and it was almost always in his parents' home, but it was the groom's responsibility to get this beautiful place ready, to build onto the house if necessary, to decorate it, to get it ready, all this stuff ready for the consummation of the marriage. And when finally this dwelling place was ready, with great celebration, he would go and get his bride. And there would be attendants, and there would be bridesmaids, and there would be groomsmen. And they'd march through the town, and there would be great celebration. Jesus told a parable. You might remember the parable of the ten virgins. And those ten virgins had lamps of oil. They were waiting for the groom to come. This is the part of the ceremony that Jesus was referring to as, as the celebration and the ceremony would take place. And then finally... Sometimes at a later time, there would be a marriage feast. And the feast was when all of the guests were invited. And there would be be great food and great drink and great celebration during this marriage feast. Now listen, so much of what took place in the ancient world, and in Israel in particular, foreshadowed things that were going to take place between Christ and the church. And this marriage ceremony is one of them. Let me tell you how these customs find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. First of all, there was a contract that was made at Calvary. Jesus Christ paid the purchase price for the bride when he died on Calvary. The Bible says that all of us have sinned, we've all fallen short of God's standard, and we all owe the penalty of what? Do you remember? death. And Jesus paid that price. So instead of being alienated from God, instead of being eternally punished, we would become the bride of Christ. He paid the price. And here's what's beautiful about it. Once he paid that price, it was sealed for time and all eternity that the church would be the bride of Christ. And when you and I become a part of the church, big C, we become a part of that bride of Christ, and it's a binding contract. Jesus isn't going to let you go. Jesus isn't going to reject you. Jesus isn't going to cheat on you with somebody else. We have entered into this beautiful marriage contract with Jesus, the husband of the church. And then the second part of the, of the marriage custom, the marriage ceremony, I see that it, it, it's fulfilled at the time of the rapture. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And when I come back for you, I will take you home to where I am. He said, in my father's house, there's many mansions. I'm going to go and get ready. He was using marriage language. And when the rapture takes place and we meet the Lord in the air, he's coming for his bride. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we have this beautiful prophecy of the marriage feast of the Lamb. And this is when there's guests invited. Chapter 19 describes it. I don't have time to get into who the guests are. But there's people invited to celebrate with Jesus and his bride, the church. And this fulfills his last part of the marriage ceremony. And friends, I want you to know the love of Jesus for you and for me and for us collectively is like a bridegroom for his bride. I remember walking into the church that Chris and I got married and I, I, I will never forget, as long as I live, the first time I, got, I, I caught sight of my bride. And I knew that it had been seven and a half years that I'd waited for this moment to be married. I didn't know for a long time if I wanted to marry this woman. She was so patient, she waited for me. She had told me when we first started dating, I believe I will marry you someday. I told her at one point, I don't love you, go away. I don't want you in my life anymore. When I walked into that church and I saw her in her wedding dress, I started bawling like a baby. All of our pictures are pathetic because my eyes are red and swollen. <laughs> I was so grateful. I was so filled with love. And over the 18 years, things haven't been perfect. We've, we've had rocky times. There have been times when we honestly didn't know if we would make it, but we've pushed through. And I'll tell you, sometimes, some days, I call Chris up and I just say, I just have to tell you, I'm having a wave of love for you. My love for her is so much deeper today than it was 18 years ago. I didn't think I could love anybody anymore 18 years ago. It's just grown and grown and grown. Do you know this is the love Jesus has for his church, Big C? And if you've come to Jesus, if your sins have been washed away, if you've become a part of the church, Big C, Jesus loves you like that. He loves you like a groom loves his bride. It's not a little thing. Jesus doesn't think you're a dork. Jesus doesn't think you're a loser. Jesus doesn't think you're a screw-up. He's passionate for you. He loves you. And he can't wait to come and get you along with all the other believers that are a part of the church, Big C. Do you get what I'm saying? It's something that we can look forward to with anticipation and joy and uh, great expectation. Do you feel it? Jesus is coming for his bride, and we will forever be with the Lord. That would be a good time for hanky Waven. You got a hanky? <laughs> All right. I forget we're not in Oklahoma. What do we do with this? Uh, I always want to give you some next steps, and so I've got a few here for you today. A couple things that I think it's important for us to ponder. First one is this. Make sure you is a part of us. That's probably a strange phrase. When I first wrote that, I put, make sure you are a part of us. What I'm talking about is you and I are singular individuals, so I wanted to use the singular is. It's so important, if you want to be a part of the Bride of Christ, that you are attached to the rest of the Bride of Christ. I had a really interesting conversation a week or so ago with somebody who attends Connect Church and and it was on the week that I was talking about the wrath of God. And I had shared that verse that says that we are not destined for wrath. The, the, the future of the church is not for wrath. And this person uh, sent me a Facebook message and said, Pastor Russ, you're not talking about repentance. Where does repentance work into this? Because she said, we've been taught that if we don't live lives of repentance and obedience to the Lord, that, that we could fall away and we could miss The coming of the Lord. And she said, is that not true? And I said, it's absolutely true. You can can live in sin and rebellion, and you can fall away from the Lord. Uh, 1 John is very explicit about that. People who practice sin are not abiding in the love of God. Hebrews says that if we continue to sin knowingly, we trample the Son of God. And that is talking to individual people. But these promises about the unwavering love of the Lord for his church for the bride uh the promise that we are not destined for wrath these are promises given to the church big C and so if you want those promises to uh, apply to you as an individual you need to make sure that you're part of the big C church Am I, am I being clear? Make sure that you, singular, individual, you are a part of the big us. How do you do that? You do that by receiving the new life that Jesus gives you and then walking in the new life of obedience that he births within you. It's not easy, and it takes perseverance, and it, and it means that when you stumble and you fall, you pick yourself up, you brush yourself off, you say, Jesus, help me do better next time, and you, and you move on. Paul said, I haven't attained it yet, but I'm pressing on. I'm, I'm pressing towards that goal of making it to the end. That's what people who are part of the church, Big C, do. They persevere to the end. And, and, and in, the, in that context, we are not destined for wrath. And without a doubt, we will be the bride of Christ, and we will participate in that marriage feast. Make sense? So make sure you're, you is a part of us. And then secondly, I want to encourage you today to clothe yourself in good deeds. That verse uh, went by pretty fast from Revelation 19, but uh, that description that said that uh, when the marriage feast came, the bride was ready, and she was clothed in white linen, and the white linen are the good deeds of the saints. Listen, Jesus calls us to live in goodness and righteousness and obedience, And what the Bible says in other places, I don't have time to teach exhaustively on it today, but what the Bible says is that there will be rewards for our righteousness. We're not going to face judgment. The wrath of God is not for the church, for the bride. We won't experience any of that. But in one place in the New Testament, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, it says be careful that you don't lose your full reward. God has a reward planned for you. But it's all uh, part of your living in obedience with him. And when we live in love and obedience and we're serving one another and we're eliminating sin out of our lives and walking in repentance, there's a great reward planned ahead for you. So clothe yourself in good deeds. Good deeds doesn't save you. Let me be very clear. You don't get to heaven because you're good enough. That's not what it's about. You're saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus. But then Out of gratitude, we clothe ourselves in good deeds. So those are a couple of next steps. And then finally, like I have every week, I want to encourage you to go after your blessing, the blessing that comes from reading and listening and obeying the book of Revelation. Next week, Pastor Dave uh, will be teaching while I'm gone, and he's going to be teaching this next chapter, chapter 20, uh, in the book of Revelation. He'll be talking about the millennium and that great rule of Christ and uh, I want to encourage you to read ahead and be ready for that. But Jesus is coming. Yes? It's going to be good. As we close today, I want us to share in communion. And so if you would put your things aside and uh, prepare yourself. And Chris and, and the others, if, as you're serving, would you come forward? We're going to receive communion today by using what we call the common cup. And the reason I wanted to do communion this way today is because uh, partly this is a very ancient tradition in the church. And communion represents so many things. Uh, Jesus said that when we break the bread and we drink the cup, we're remembering his death and his resurrection. The broken bread represents his broken body. And the cup represents his blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, But in addition, there's some other really beautiful symbolism in the act of communion. The root word of communion is the word community. Did you know that? And uh, in in ancient times, the Jews would take a piece of matzah. Go ahead, my hands aren't, aren't clean. The Jews would take a piece of matzah like this and, and, uh, and they would pass it around the table and they would break it during the Passover celebration. When Jesus celebrated Passover or, or that first communion with his disciples, this is what he was passing around was a piece of matzah. And it represents that we are one body. We're the church, big C, and each individual is a part of it. And so what I want you to do today as we worship and remember the sacrifice of Jesus together, Would you come and would you break off a piece of that matzah? Symbolizing that you're a part of this body of Christ. And then Chris is holding the sip cup. If you want to sip, um, you are more than welcome to sip from her cup. And she'll wipe it to keep it clean. Tino here has the dip cup. If you would prefer to dip and not share germs, you can do that. I think we have some gluten-free bread as well. Is that right? Okay. If you... If you what if what if there are gluten free people? Tracy will get some okay, Tracy will help you if if you need gluten free stuff. Okay. Want to make sure everybody's included. And so we're gonna worship, we're gonna remember Jesus, and uh, why don't we stand together? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and? Let me pray for you, and I'm going to pray that Jesus will bless these communion elements. Jesus, today, we're standing before you so grateful, Jesus, that you love us like a groom loves his bride. And, Lord, I want to pray that as we celebrate communion together in this way, Lord, that the truth that we are one body, that we are the bride of Christ, that you paid the price by shedding your blood for us, will you just drive that truth home deep, deep, deep inside of us? We ask you to bless this bread as we remember your broken body. Bless this cup as we we drink together. And Jesus, if there are some of us here today who have not yet become a part of your bride Just now, Lord, as we pray together, we ask you to cleanse us of sin. We ask you to cover us with your blood, that price that was paid. Forgive us of sin. Bring us into fellowship with the rest of your bride, the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.